0: for the great music this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 to tell you how good our musicians are for Cindy and Alan to meet each other about five or ten minutes before the service and to be able to play together uh, and uh, lead. Thank you so much for that. And that's, uh, that would stress me out, but Cindy came in and said, you know, that's fine. We'll just get together a few minutes before the service. Everything stresses me out on Sunday morning. So uh, thank you for y'all being able to not be like me We're looking at the book of Romans, chapter 2, and I'm going to read in just a minute verses 1 through 11. There's a story told about a pastor that was on vacation, and he received a phone call from a church member. And and the problem is this wasn't one of his better church members. The church member told him, Pastor, there's been a tornado, and my home and my barn has been destroyed. And the pastor said, well, I'm not surprised. God will inevitably judge sin. And the church member said, well, yes, but pastor, your house was destroyed also. And the pastor said, well, how about that? (laughs) The ways of the Lord are beyond human understanding. (laughs) Why is it that it's easier to see the faults in others? Why is it that it's easier to judge other people? We've come to the second chapter of Romans, and just as a reminder of the first chapter of Romans, Paul has been condemning those folks who've turned away from God. And for the religious people, they, they don't mind hearing about the faults of other people. In fact, at times, if all you are is religious, you sit back and say, Yeah, that's right. Give it to them. Preach on. But then Paul decides to step on their toes and and really their heart. We get to verse 1 of chapter 2. and Let me read just the first three verses and we'll walk through this. And unpack this meaty passage together. Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The first point is simply this, an unrighteous or the unrighteous judge. I I, I need to do a study how many times the word therefore is in Scripture. We kind of skip the word therefore, and you know the preacher joke about when you see therefore, you're supposed to find out what it's there for. But you really need to pay attention to the therefores in Scripture, because what Paul is doing, and by the way, when Paul or any of the New Testament and even Old Testament writers wrote, they didn't put chapters and verses. We've come in and done that later to make it a little more easy to read and manageable for us. But Paul has made a case against those who've turned their back on God. And he said, ultimately, that leads to incredibly depraved things. And we, I preached on that last week, and we walked through that. If you go back and read the end of chapter 1, it talks about where humans end up going to who, who ignore and deny God. And Paul has said to them, you're without excuse. If you deny the existence of God, you're without excuse because God has made it evident within every one of you that He exists. And you should have turned to Him in worship. Instead, you created your own gods, And you've you've given your bodies, your life over to just depraved things. But now Paul turns from those folks and he starts talking to religious folks. And he says, therefore, you're without excuse. And and that would have obviously kind of perked their ears up to say, whoa, wait, time out, wait a minute. Well, we're not doing the stuff you talked about in chapter 1. What you just finished talking about, we're okay. Our chests are poked out. We can take a deep breath here. We're okay. Paul says, You're with that excuse every time you pass judgment on somebody else. I want to make a distinction in the word judgment because I want to get a, some practical teaching right in the middle of this message. When Paul says you're judging other people, it basically is this. In fact, I almost title this message, Who Died and Left You God. Because what you're doing when you judge, and the word that Paul uses there is, you have become judge, jury, and executioner. It's not just that you're looking at them and saying what you're doing is wrong, but you're pointing the finger and condemning them and basically carrying out punishment against them. And what's worse is, not only are you condemning them, but you're doing the same things they're doing. Paul says, do you suppose... Have you taken an inventory? Have you made an estimate? Have you done the math and you've added it up? And somehow you think that because you are, and he's talking specifically in this passage to Jews, but I haven't really made that point real carefully because it's really talking to anybody who considers themselves religious and righteous enough just in the fact they're religious. You ever talk to somebody about their relationship with God and they say, well, yeah, I belong to that church down there. They don't ever go, but they belong, so it's okay. What Paul is simply saying is this. Listen, if you really are a child of God, it will be evident in your life. There will be evidence. There will be fruit there, and it will be evidence. The problem is the the people that Paul is addressing were simply religious. In case you think i got something against the word religion and religious, I kind of do because both of those words, religion and religious, are only used about ten times in Scripture. And all but once or twice, God condemns it. And most people just kind of think, It's kind of good to be religious. I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. My first summer here, I'd done the sunrise service, the Easter service, ran into a lady at a pizza place. She said, you're going to love it down here. Everybody down here is a Christian. Really? (laughs) I've been here ten years now. Let me tell you, they're not. Everybody that goes to church is not a Christian. They may be religious. There's a big difference in having this religious thing and having a relationship with God. And Paul says, who do you think you are? Do you suppose that because you have a birthright, do you suppose that makes you exempt from God's judgment when you're doing the same thing that you're pointing the finger at? The answer is no, you're not exempt from the judgment of God. And folks, at the outset, this passage is not as much about salvation as it is about Fruit and indication of salvation. Paul says judgment rightly falls with God. You you ought to know that. We know, literally, it, it indicates an awareness that is commonly known and obvious. And yet it must not be obvious because Paul had to write this letter. And he had to include this in his letter. You're not going to escape God's judgment. When you point your fingers at others and do the same thing. Let me give you a picture of a judge. What do you think about when you see this picture? <laughs> you know, you kind of think of somebody that kind of looks down their nose at other people. And I don't even know that that gavel, he's going to hit his table or, you know, a little pad with it to get ordered. It looks like he may hit you. He's got the robe on and all that. But that's the picture I want you to have in your mind the next time you go to judge somebody else. So let me, let me give you a few practical things. Let me start with a couple of verses. One's from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Luke chapter 6, verse 37. It's also found in Matthew in that, that, that lengthy three-chapter uh, treatise on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. But it says this, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will Pardon. Great teaching. Then there's another verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. And I'm going to use the King James translation and then explain it in just a minute. But it says this. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. It's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid, your mom says, don't talk to strangers. And then you get a job and you don't do well because you won't open your mouth and talk to people. Especially if your job is sales, <laughs> you're working at the gap, you've got to talk to strangers. You're, you're kind of like, well, wait a minute, I was told not to talk to strangers, now you're telling me i got to as part of the job. Kind of seems like the same thing. Isn't Jesus saying don't judge other people? But then Paul in 1 Corinthians writes and says, hey, spiritual people make judgment about all things. Well, you need to know the difference in the two words. The first word is the judgment that I've already talked about which means to point your finger at and condemn, you've already you already had the trial. There's no room for grace. There's no room for God's kindness or patience. It's Those folks are just guilty. Go ahead and execute them. The other word, in fact, in New American Standard, which is what I use, actually uses the word appraises, and it means this. It means to scrutinize or investigate or determine. So those who are believers, there are are times that we are told we've got to scrutinize. We've got to make some determination. We have to appraise things. But very different from that we've taken it upon ourselves to act in the role of God. Let me give you some do's and don'ts. The first don't is don't be self-righteous. What Jesus is saying and even what Paul is saying is when you become self-righteous, You basically only see the faults in other people. Remember what Jesus said when he was teaching on this? He said, why is it that you're trying to pick a speck out of your brother's eye and you don't even notice this log protruding from your own eye? What should you do? Get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you can more clearly see to help your brother or your sister. So when you're self-righteous, it basically is this attitude. I got it all together. God's really kind of done with me. I'm, I'm really not even growing anymore because I'm perfect. In fact, I'm really God's gift to the to the church. <laughs> and you become self-righteous. You kind of become self-absorbed and kind of feel like you got it so put together that you can take care of everybody else. You know anybody like that? Kind of miniature Holy Spirits. Second thing is don't be hypocritical. What were these people doing? They were doing the same things that they were accusing other people of doing. Now, let me be real careful here, but, you know, I think sometimes the reason that we point out faults in others is because God's already convicting us of the same thing about ourselves. And rather than us deal with the sin in our life, we just think, man, that's a horrible thing. Well, it's horrible because God's convicting you. You're doing it. And it becomes glaring in everybody else. So don't be hypocritical. Third thing is, third don't, is don't punish. You're not God. Big difference, because I'm going to talk about discipline in a minute in the do stuff. But punish is, the verdict's already been read, they're guilty, there's no hope of restoration. It's just execute. It's not your job to do that. So what should we do? First, be humble. Be humble. It ought to grieve you if you see somebody else living in sin. Rather than make you arrogant and you're just like, I can't believe what you're doing. No. Listen, apart from God's grace, you'd be doing the same thing. And it may be that you are doing the same thing. But even if you're walking closely with God, you've got to keep in the back of your mind, apart from the grace of God, I would be doing the same thing. Why? Because we're sinners. These whole first two and a half chapters point to verse 23 of chapter 3, where Paul says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The religious and the non-religious. Everybody. Nobody's exempt. So be humble about it. Don't, don't feel like it makes you feel better if you can find people that are worse than you. I've said this before, but I think there's some people think we're going to get to heaven. And God's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? And you're going to say, well, you let him in. And I'm better than he is, so you got to let me in. Aren't you grading on the curve here? No. The reason he got in is he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Acknowledging he's a sinner, and apart from God, he's helpless. So Be humble. Second thing is be forgiving. Be forgiven. We have been if you're a child of God, you have been forgiven of a lot. And maybe sometimes you don't need to dwell on it, you don't need to only look at your past, but sometimes you just need to remember where you came from. And acknowledge that, God, I'm I'm a sinner. And apart from the grace of God, I would deserve to be separated from you for eternity. And so God, when people around me mess up, rather than only pointing it out and shining the spotlight on it so I can make them feel even smaller, I'm going to be learn to do what you do, and that is, I'm going to forgive them. Third, third thing, and I may have made a word up here, but it fits. Be restorative. Be restorative. <laughs> Be redemptive. There's discipline involved in this. There's a big difference in discipline and punishment. Parents, this works for your children. It also works in the church. Punishment is kind of final. There's coming a day when God will ultimately punish. Discipline has redemption in mind. Discipline has a future in store. So the same way we raise our children, we raise them with discipline because we want to see them do the right thing. Not that we just cut their head off every time they do the wrong thing, because you can only do that once. So discipline. One of the best stories of a church I heard, a member of the church fell into sin. And he came before the church and confessed it. And they centered around, put around him a group of accountability. And he had to meet every week, Monday night, he had to go to this house. And he met with a group of elders from the church. And he'd been doing that for a little over a year. And he pulled up to the house on Monday night like he had been doing for a year, for over a year. And there were cars everywhere. It scared him to death. He thought, oh my goodness, what's going on? And he walked up to the door. And when he opened the door, they put a robe on him. They gave him a brand new pair of shoes. And they put a ring on his finger. And they said, you're restored. What were they pointing to? They were pointing back to the prodigal son. The father loved him enough to let him go and live that life, but he loved him enough to welcome him back when he repented and came home. And I love that story of a church that had the grace to do that with a member. Some folks won't be restored because they continue to walk away from God, but as folks desire restoration and they submit to biblical authority, we forgive and we restore, and then the The last one is be righteous. The opposite of being self-righteous is being righteous, which means you operate in a right relationship with God. There are times that we need to be discerning about error. And we need to have relationships with people where we can go to them in love and say, hey, I just got to ask you, why are you doing that? I love you enough. I want to help you walk through getting over that so you're not doing that anymore. I'm not going to look down my nose at you and point a finger at you, but I want to kind of be Jesus with skin on for you. Because, hey, I'm a sinner. I want to help you. Because I want to have that same relationship with people that could come to me and help me. So be righteous. In fact, the next few few verses, let me read verses 4 through 8. Tell us what we need to be doing rather than looking out. We need to be looking in. Verses 4 through 8. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So Paul said, rather than look out there and judge people and condemn them for doing the same things you're doing, instead, take a look inside. And the first thing he says to him is, do you think lightly of the riches of God, the grace that God has poured Out upon you. The word to think lightly means to think down against. King James Version uses the word despiseth. It's the same word, if you're familiar with 1 Timothy 4.12, where Paul says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but instead set an example for the believers. That same word where you kind of look down, you push down, you think down. And what Paul is saying is, listen, if you're really a child of God, you've received... God's riches in His grace, in His mercy, His forbearance, His patience. Why are you thinking lightly of that? Why aren't you allowing other people to receive that themselves? Have you declared that that has no value? In fact, it says, you know, His riches literally is a valuable bestowment. But here's what He says, His kindness, His tolerance, which literally means to hold back. It's a word used in the Bible when there was a truce between two warring factions. They're holding back. God has demonstrated patience, literally forbearance. It's used of a ruler who had the authority and even now the power to subdue an enemy. But he exercised forbearance. He didn't overthrow and subdue the enemy. It's an example of God's patience. Folks, it's been demonstrated to you. If I were God, we'd do things differently. <laughs> Man, if you mess up one time, you're out. But God continues to offer grace. God continues to offer forgiveness. Here's what He's saying to the religious people that day. Here's what applies to us in this day. If you've received God's grace, be grace givers. One of the best examples of God's grace and His mercy, His patience is Noah. Noah. God was upset with man, and He said, I'm not going to keep striving with man forever. And He, he went to Noah, He pronounced judgment. Well, while Noah built the ark, God gave an opportunity for people to repent. Do you know how long it took to build the ark? This wasn't some kit you got from Home Depot. It wasn't six months. It was 120 years And it didn't take 120 years to build an ark. It took that long because God was being patient before He sent the judgment that He was going to send. He was patient. God waited 800 years hoping His people would repent before He allowed them to be taken into captivity in the Old Testament. And what He's simply saying is this, Do you just don't value that at all. Paul even says over in Thessalonians, he says, in the last days there's going to be people looking at the patience of God who's promised that He's coming again to redeem mankind, take them to Himself for eternity. People are going to look at that and say, he's, it's been so long. He's not coming. If He was going to come, He'd have come by now. And Paul says, no, what some people see as slowness, you need to understand, is patience. Because God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to faith and have life in Him. So when we judge other people and go ahead and condemn them, we're basically saying, you know, that, the value of that grace that's been bestowed upon me is not really for them. Paul says, no, you're thinking lightly of that. You're pushing down something that God has lifted up. Do you not know that the kindness of God leads to repentance? To tell you how arrogant I was in the early days of my ministry, there was a song that saying, you know, it's the kindness that leads us to repentance. And I kind of thought, that's not true. It's the fear of God that leads us to repentance. We just need to convince people how bad they are. They're sinners. They ought to be afraid of God. He's got a big stick. He's going to hit you with it. That's not biblical. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Some of the demonstrations of that kindness is conviction of sin. Some of the demonstration of that kindness is patience and long-suffering. That He He waits Folks, what really brings us to God in repentance is to understand that He loves you and that, yes, He's a God of wrath, but He's also a God of mercy. And we don't need to get those out of balance on either side of the scale. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. What does the word repent mean? The Old Testament, it meant, same thing it does in the New Testament, it meant you were walking one direction and you repented. 180 degree. It means a change of direction Or a change of time, uh, excuse me, a change of thinking, change of mind, a change of thinking. That's repentance. That's what God's trying to call you to. See, if we're God and we judge people and condemn them, we don't even allow for repentance. We just point the finger, guilty, execute. God looks down with a heart of compassion and says, guilty, I'll pay the penalty. Now, now don't get the repentance thing wrong because I've heard teenagers share their testimony. Went to youth camp. God got a hold of my life, turned my life around 360 degrees. I'm one of those that think about stuff like that, and I think, wait a minute, if if your life got turned around 360 degrees, you're still heading in the same direction you were going. That's not repentance. That's a dance. Repentance is a total turn. Change of mind, change of direction. And God's kindness leads to that. Folks, if you're a child of God, that's what it led to for you. If you see somebody stumbling, rather than piling on, pray for them. Go to them in love and talk to them. Check your motives before you go. Because his kindness leads to repentance. But then here's an indictment upon the religious. He says, because of your stubborn. An unrepentant heart. You're storing up wrath for yourself. Stubborn. It means hardness of heart. In fact, it's the Greek word sclerosis. It's the word we get the word sclerosis from. Arteriosclerosis. Any doctors in the house? I'm not. means hardening of the arteries. What Paul's saying is you're stubborn. And your heart has become hardened. When you can look at sin and only gloat over it, your heart's hard. Sin ought to break your heart, not harden it towards other people. And unrepentant. Paul's saying God's kindness leads us to repentance. But you're just religious. You haven't repented yourself. You're just religious. You may be a member of a church, but you don't know God. Your unwillingness to change direction is causing wrath to be stored up for the day of wrath. Folks, I think part of God's judgment is fleshed out now. Part of what we're living under. We're living under all sin carries a capital punishment. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, after that, everything dies. We die. So the result of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Big difference between what we earn and what we're given. We'll get, that, get, get to that later in the book of Romans. But Paul says he's storing up wrath. There's part of what we do. There's natural consequences of it. Some of what you do will be judged because God has said, if you do this, this will happen. If you play in traffic long enough, you'll get hit by a car. here's the good news for believers. If you're a child of God, you spend eternity with Him in heaven. No, we're not going to face God and God say, okay, you did enough good. Get in. You're in. No. We are judged according to our deeds. And I don't want to get into a whole lot of this, but as you study judgment in Scripture, the one talked about in Revelation chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment. Everybody will come before that And the only people who are spared is the people whose names are written in the book of life. How does your name get written in the book of life? How does your name stay there? It's because you're a child of God. You've confessed your sin. You've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've said, nothing in my hand I bring. Only to your cross I cling. I'm not good enough in myself to earn it. But God, you've given it as part of your grace, your mercy. The ones who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are sent away into eternal damnation. The other judgment is the beamer seat judgment. I don't understand everything about that. It talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for instance, that your work, what you do on earth, is going to be revealed through testing fire. For some that built with wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to burn up. You're not going to have anything to show for your life. And it says, yet they get into heaven, but it's like their britches are scorching. Smoke still coming off the back. Others that are built with gold, silver, and precious stone receive a reward. And what all of those rewards are, I don't know. I know the Bible talks about crowns. I don't think it's that you're going to have a bigger mansion than somebody else. But I know it talks about crowns, and what do we do with those I don't know. The only thing I see them doing is they cast them at the feet of Jesus as part of worship. I don't know that we're going to walk around with like five crowns on top of our head for eternity going, Look at me. I've been to Burger King. No. I don't think that's what that's all about, but there are talks about rewards, and that's the beamer seat judgment. If you're a child of God, great white throne judgment, Jesus on the throne, judging, we're going to be judged based on... Our faith in Jesus Christ, that He's our Savior. Femers seek judgment. We're judged based on what we've done with the grace that God's given us. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, verse 8, For by grace you're saved through faith. That not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, because if it was, you could boast about it. But verse 10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's got something for you to do. We don't do it to earn salvation. We do it because we've been saved. It's the fruit of the grace that's been applied to our life. Then the last is simply the the righteous judge, verses 9 through 11. Closing this section out, Paul says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jew that was happy to be considered first. But Paul says the rewards are offered to the Jew first, but you've got to understand you're not the only one getting it also to the Greek, but also The punishment, if you've rejected Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're looking at tribulation and distress because you've done evil. In both cases, the Jew was first. And if you're passing out ice cream, I want to be first in line. If you're passing out spankings, you can go in front of me. And then I love the closing verse. We'll close with this. Bottom line, there's no partiality with God. The word literally means an acceptor of face. It means this. God doesn't judge the book by the cover. God doesn't look at one certain group. And God doesn't look at one certain person. God doesn't do what we do sometimes. Where we look at things and simply judge it by outward appearance. God knows your heart. And he's impartial. He treats us all the same. His grace is available to all. I read a story about a family. In 1884, a young man died. And after the funeral, his grieving parents decided to establish a memorial for him. They went and met with Charles Eliot, the, pa- the president of Harvard University. Eliot received the unpretentious couple into his office and asked what he could do for them. And after expressing their desire to fund a memorial, Elliot impatiently said, well, perhaps you have in mind a scholarship. They said, we're thinking of something more substantial than that, perhaps a building. The woman replied, in a patronizing tone, Elliot brushed aside the idea as being too expensive. So the couple departed. The next year, Elliot learned that this plain pair had gone elsewhere and established a $26 million memorial in 1884. Named the Leland Stanford Junior University. Today that's known better as simply Stanford University. I think maybe Elliot thought, Wait, wait, I take that back. I didn't know you had that much money. What's, What's God saying? God is saying I'm not showing partiality. It's not because of what group you come from. It's not because of what you look like on the outside. My grace is available To all. Religious people here among us. Spiritual people here among us. If you've received grace, show grace. If you're here today and you've never received grace, and maybe you're even tired of church people. Because maybe all the people you've ever met that call themselves Christians have just condemned you. Let me tell you something. Don't reject Jesus because of church people you've met. He's better than that. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you that we know you're better than that. The truth is you're better than we think you are. And God, forgive us at times that we don't give an accurate representation of who Jesus is. And God, I pray the world around us would see who you really are. God, help us, some among us, Lord, that have been walking with you for a long time. Help us remember where we came from. Help us remember the richness of your grace. God, help us to show that to others. God, thank you that you have not left us, God. and God, we're simply your followers. We're, we're receivers of your mercy. Help us to show that to others. And God, if there's someone here today that maybe they just never responded to you because the example they've been given led them away from you. God, I pray today they would see and know the truth that there's a God who loved them enough to die on the cross to pay for their sin. Yes, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yes, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for that in Jesus' name.